Hey, good morning, everybody. It really is a good morning, isn't it? After all that rain and darkness yesterday and to wake up this morning and see the sun starting to peak from behind the clouds, it's really a neat thing to see. And we're glad that you're spending part of your Labor Day weekend here with us. I want to invite you to open your Bible or your Bible app to Exodus chapter 2 and Matthew chapter 9. Those are the main scriptures we're going to be looking at today. Did you ever meet Peyton Manning in person? We've all seen him on TV, right? Uh, did anybody in here ever see, uh, actually get to shake his hand or meet him? It's really neat when you get to meet somebody like that, a celebrity, in person. I ran into the champion boxer, George Foreman, in an airport. I was going through security, and the guy who was with me said, I think that's George Foreman right in front of you. And I thought, you know, it looks like him very much. I've seen him on the commercials and stuff. <laughs> and he was wearing a cap, but I wasn't sure. But I just impulsively reached out my hand to him, and I said, are you George Foreman? And it was. He took his cap off, and he reached out his big, beefy boxer hand, you know, and shook my hand. And now I'd started this conversation. What was I supposed to say next? I blurted out the only thing I could think of, which I said, my wife loves your grill. <laughs> he looked at me like, yeah, okay. <laughs> but, but it was really pretty neat to meet him. And then back when Tony Dungy was the coach of the Colts, I got to have lunch with him one day. And actually, it was really neat. It was during the preseason, and it was a game day. And I got to have lunch with him, and he gave me, at the end of our time together, he gave me this football, and he signed it. You know, this is not Photoshopped. <laughs> I really met him, and he gave me this football, and he signed his name, and he put Super Bowl 41 champs. And the thing I love, he also wrote at the bottom of that a scripture verse it's really neat to have a coach like that of his caliber who puts a scripture verse with his autograph, Matthew 16, 26, and it says, what good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul, or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? So it was really neat to meet him. I, I got to get rid of this football, so. Yes. I told him earlier I was going to make him dive for it. <laughs> but good catch, good catch. But you know, let me ask you, it's one thing to meet somebody famous in person. It's different than just kind of knowing about them. But what if you got to meet God in person? Especially during this stressful couple of years we've been through, there have been times when you just thought, if only I could just talk to God face to face, if I could just talk to him in person and just tell him what I'm going through. Do you ever wish you could have a personal connection with God? Well, in Exodus chapter 2, the Hebrews were miserable. You talk about stress. This was long-term, and they were under great duress. They were slaves in Egypt. They were making bricks out of mud. Life was hard. But Exodus 2 tells us something about God in this situation. This is what it says. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And so God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Now, that great passage of Scripture tells us four things about God that I want you to notice real quickly. First, it tells us that God hears. He heard their groaning. He heard their cries for help. They weren't just praying and falling on deaf ears. And then it says God remembers. It says that he remembered the covenant he had made with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. Now, that's important because Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had been dead for years by the time that 
God was speaking to Moses in the book of Exodus, and yet he still knew and remembered that covenant, and he remembered the names of these men, and he cared about them by name. Do you ever have trouble remembering people, their names? I'm getting to the point in life where I wish everybody just wore name tags all the time, you know? <laughs> I'm sorry if I ever forget your name, but it's just, it's just hard. I got too many names going around in my head, but not God. He's good at that. In fact, you know, uh, usually around Christmas time, there's a star registry where you can name a star. You know, that's really some racket, isn't it, to make money? Think how many stars there are, and they charge you to name a star after somebody. That's a pretty good way to make money. They do that every year. But the fact is that stars already have names because according to Psalm 147, verse 4, it says, God determines the number of the stars and calls them each by name. Now, the cool thing about that is there are about 2 trillion galaxies in our universe with 100 million stars in each one, and yet God keeps track of all of them and knows all their names. So you don't have to worry whether he's going to remember you and know who you are. He remembers your name. He will never forget you. And God sees. It says God looked on the Israelites, so he knew what was going on, the stress they were under. He saw their plight. And then this is my favorite part of that passage in Exodus. It says, so God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. He cares. He's not just looking at you with a hard heart. He has a soft heart when you're hurting. So God hears, God remembers, God sees, and God cares. We're going to come back to that later. I want you to kind of let those points sink into your mind because we're in the second part this week of a two-part series that Ron Merrill started last week called How God Sees You. Now, the later part of the book of Acts adds another point to this, and that is that God acts. He doesn't just know what's going on. He intervenes. He takes steps to make things different. Now, in this case, in Exodus, it took 40 years. It took time. But eventually, God led the Hebrews from Egypt, where they were slaves, where they were miserable, to the promised land. It took time, and it took a person. God sent Moses to lead them. Now, I want to show you a photo. I really like this picture. It's really pretty neat to me. This picture, maybe some of you have seen it. It's been circulating on the internet. This is an aerial photo of sheep on a pasture field. There was a guy, a farmer in Australia, who wanted to attend his aunt's funeral, but because of the pandemic, he could not. So he came up with a clever way to pay tribute to her. He drove around in the field with his truck and dumped barley on the ground. So when the sheep gathered to eat, they gathered in the shape of a giant heart. And from an aerial perspective, this is what the sheep look like. Isn't that a heartwarming, beautiful photo? I just love the thought of that. Now let me show you another picture. This is a picture of the crowd around the airport in Afghanistan just a few days ago. This isn't heartwarming. This is a heartbreaking picture. There's fear and desperation in the eyes of these people. Now, those two pictures together make me think of what we read about in Matthew chapter 9, because it says that when Jesus saw the crowds, we're talking about how God sees you. Look at this. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Sheep need to be fed, they need to be led, and they need to be protected. And the Bible says the Lord is our shepherd. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. That's the way he looks at the crowds. 
He sees people who need guidance and protection and nourishment. He sees people who are harassed and helpless. You know, something happened incredibly dramatic about 2,000 years ago that changed the whole world. Sometimes we picture God as, oh, okay, he cares about me, but he's way out there in outer space somewhere with all these stars to worry about, you know. He's way out there. He's so far out in the distance. What does he really know about me and my world? But about 2,000 years ago, an incredibly dramatic thing happened that literally changed the calendar. It's the pivotal point of all history. The Bible says the word was God. And then it says the word became flesh and lived for a while among us. God himself walked on earth in human flesh. Now, we don't know how tall he was. Maybe he was 5'8", maybe he was 6'3". We don't know. But we know that he had a body like ours. He was tempted like we are. He hurt the way we do. And if you ever wonder what God is like or whether he cares about you, look at Jesus. Jesus said... If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus fulfilled prophecies in the Old Testament. The whole Bible actually leads up to him even before he was born in Bethlehem. It's telling us things like this. In Genesis, he is the seed of the woman who will crush the serpent's head. In Exodus, he is the Passover lamb. In Leviticus, he's our high priest. In Psalms, he's our good shepherd. In Proverbs, he's the source of true wisdom. In Daniel, he's the fourth man in the fiery furnace. In Jonah, he's the one given up for dead who comes back alive on the third day. In Micah, he's the ruler born in Bethlehem. In Isaiah, he's the suffering servant who bears our sins. He's the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. This is Jesus Christ in the New Testament. He is the master teacher, the great physician, the friend of the poor, the king of kings and the Lord of lords, the one who victoriously died on the cross for us and then came back to life again after dying on the cross. In sports, they talk about the goat, the, the, the greatest of all time. And there's these debates. Who's the greatest of all time? Who's the goat in football? Is it Tom Brady or Peyton Manning? Well, it's not Tom Brady. Oh, well, I shouldn't say that. In basketball, is it Michael Jordan or is it LeBron James? In gymnastics, it's probably Simone Biles. Who's the goat? Who's the greatest of all time? But let me tell you, when it comes to all of human history, who is the greatest person of all time who's walked on this earth? There's only one answer. It's Jesus Christ, the greatest of all time. And he's not the goat. He's the lamb. He's the lamb of God. So here's the point. You want to know God? You got to get to know Jesus. And if you want to know how Jesus looks at you, look at, at the way that he's described in the Gospels. Read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Today, we're just going to take a quick look at some examples from Matthew chapter 9 that tell us specifically how he saw people. You know, he saw the crowds. Okay, let's look at some specifics in that. Now, Matthew chapter 9 starts with a little story about four men. It's one of my favorite stories in the Gospels about four men who bring their paralyzed friend to Jesus. They had a friend who could not walk. And it says they brought, him to, they brought to Jesus a paralyzed man lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, so Jesus sees them, he sees the faith, not just the faith of the paralyzed man, but the faith of the guys who brought him. And he said to the man, take heart, son, your sins 
are forgiven. Now, there are several things about this story that I really like. Jesus saw their faith because he saw what they did. They did an audacious thing. The other gospels tell us that the place where Jesus was teaching was so crowded. He was teaching in a house, and it was so crowded that they couldn't get in with their man on the mat, their friend on the mat, and so they climbed up on the roof of the house. In those days, roofs on houses, had, they had flat roofs. They climbed up on the roof, and they tore a hole in the roof, tied ropes to the corners of the mat, and lowered their friend down. It's like a human elevator, you know. They're lowering him down, and he's right. Can you just picture this? Jesus is teaching in the crowd, and all of a sudden, dust is falling down from the ceiling. Dirt. And all of a sudden, there's a big hole, and you can see sunlight, and there's this man coming down on ropes. And I hope that whoever owned that house liked their new skylight. You know, it's just a crazy kind of a wild thing that they did. But Jesus looked at this and saw their faith. They believed in him so much, and they loved their friends so much, that they went to great lengths to bring their friend to Jesus. Now, by the way... That's a challenge to us. How hard will we work? What are we willing to do? What lengths are we willing to go to to bring our friends to know Jesus? Well, Jesus healed the man's legs, but did you notice he also forgave the man's sins, which was actually his bigger problem. And then Matthew goes on to tell another story. Later in this chapter, he says, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew. Now, this is Matthew writing about it. This is Matthew telling his own story. He saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. Now, I love how it says he saw a man named Matthew. How does God see you? Well, he saw this man. And by the way, see, later, this is the same chapter where it says that when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. So it tells us that Jesus sees the multitudes. He sees the big crowd, but he also sees the individual. Jesus doesn't just see crowds of people. He sees people in crowds. When he's looking at us today, this big room full of people, he doesn't just see this big throng of people. He sees you. He knows what's going on in your life, what's going on in your heart. He saw Matthew. Matthew wants to tell us his own personal story in this book that he's writing about Jesus because Jesus changed his life. Maybe even changed his name. You know, in the other gospels, this same guy is called Levi, But Matthew means gift of God. I have a son named Matthew, Matt, gift of God. It might be, I just wonder if his name was Levi until he got up and followed Jesus. And then from then on, he was going to be known as the gift of God. I don't know. But Jesus changed his life. I love the way it says he saw Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Now, this is Labor Day weekend, so it's a good weekend to remind ourselves that Jesus cares about where you work. He sees what you're dealing with at work. For Matthew, he had a high-paying job, but it was a very unpopular one. If you dared to be a tax collector, people were going to hate your guts. They just couldn't stand tax collectors, and usually for good reason, because most tax collectors in those days were swindlers. They were white-collar criminals who cheated the taxpayers out of their money, and they took money from the Jewish people and gave it to the hated Roman government So most Jewish people considered taxpayers or tax uh, gatherers, tax collectors, they considered them traitors. They hated tax. They wouldn't even let them come to worship at the local synagogue. And here's Matthew, and Jesus sees him. He sees where he works. He sees how people look at him. 
By the way, even the fact that Jesus saw him, looked at him, is interesting to me. My wife, Candy, and I love going to farmer's markets. I grew up on a farm, and I just like being around that stuff and produce and everything. So Saturdays, we like to go and buy some tomatoes and corn, you know. But we've learned when we go to the farmer's market, and there are a lot of vendors there, you don't look at the ones that you aren't interested in their product, because if you look at them and you look at them in the eye, they're going to think you want to buy something, and I don't want to buy that. I just want—I know what I want to buy. That's what you do when you don't, when you're not interested in something. You just kind of avert your eyes. And most people would have averted their eyes when they walked past Matthew at the tax collector's booth. He was the last person in the world they wanted to look in the eye. But Jesus saw him at the tax collector's booth. Jesus—that's the way Jesus is. Jesus sees you. He sees you. That's the way you see him described in the New Testament. He sees little kids that others are trying to shoo away. And he says, no, let them come. Let them come to me. And he blesses them and he prays for them. He sees another tax collector, a guy named Zacchaeus, who had climbed up in a tree because he was short and he wanted a better view of Jesus. Jesus noticed a sick woman who reached up in the crowd and touched the hem of his garment, hoping for healing. And the disciples were like, how did you notice this? We're in a big crowd. And he's like, I could tell somebody's reaching out to me. Jesus touched people with leprosy that others avoided. Other people didn't even notice when a poor woman put the last two little copper coins that she owned into the temple treasury. Nobody noticed it, but Jesus did. He sees you. And not only that, he seeks you. You know, seeing is not the same as seeking. If you just kind of see that somebody's there, that's one thing. But if you're seeking them... There's something deeper about that. I have a little four-year-old granddaughter. If she were to be with me and she wander off, I would seek her with all my heart. And I would be so relieved when I found her. I have another granddaughter, a couple of teenage granddaughters, and one of them just graduated from high school this summer. And my wife and I went to the graduation ceremony and we looked down in this giant arena, and there are hundreds of graduates down there wearing identical caps and gowns, but we sought our granddaughter's face, and out of all those people who basically from, the, from way up in the air, they looked all the same, but we looked and looked until we saw Abby. We wanted to see our Abby, and we saw her face, and she's like sneaking a little wave into us, you know, because she wasn't just somebody in the crowd. This is how Jesus looks at you. He doesn't just see you. He seeks you. And then he sends you. This is a very challenging thing. He says to Matthew, come follow me. Follow me. There's so much in those two little words. I mean, follow me. He's not calling Matthew to follow some new religious tradition. He's saying, follow me personally. And when he says follow, it's not some lame thing like following somebody on Facebook or Twitter you know, it's not just being a fan like we follow the cults. Follow me. Not just admire me, he says. Not just know about me. Follow me. It means he's out in front. And notice, he was going to, Jesus wanted him to follow him because he was going to prepare Matthew for important work that he had for him to do. He was going to send him to make a difference in the world in a way that Matthew could have never conceived of. You see, our mission and our identity, our purpose in life, they're all tied up in Jesus. Following Jesus means that our primary identity is in him, not in politics, not in our social status, but in him. And when we follow Jesus, it means he's always ahead of us. 
We're following where he's going, not where the world has taken us, not just where we would naturally go. Matthew got up from the tax collector's booth and he left everything, the Bible says, except uh, somebody pointed out, and I agree with this, he, he took one thing with him. You know what he took? His pen <laughs> from his tax collectors because he ended up writing this book that we're reading about Jesus. I'm so glad that he at least took his pen with him. Because Jesus had work for him to do. Now, here's the next thing that happens in verse 10. It says, while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him. Well, who else were friends with Matthew? Other tax collectors and people, you know, of ill repute in the town. So he has them all over for dinner, and they're eating with Jesus and his disciples. I love that Matthew opened his home and invited his friends over to meet Jesus. Do you know somebody who needs to meet Jesus? I wonder about Matthew's friends. What were they like? Maybe one of them was like my friend Bob. Bob, years ago, he was a sports writer. He had no interest in God. Just a curiosity, I suppose. But one day, they were sitting at breakfast on a Sunday morning, and Bob's eight-year-old son looked at him and said, Dad, why don't we go to church? His son had been hearing on the school bus other friends say they go to church. And so his eight-year-old son said, why don't we go to church? And Bob said, all right, well, all right, we'll try it. So he came to church, sat in the back, just to satisfy his son. And he was expecting to be bored and very uh, negatively impressed. And instead, he says, he noticed there were some actually some kind of smart, kind people there. And he was strangely drawn to Jesus through the teaching. A few weeks later, I had the opportunity to baptize Bob into Christ. And about 20 years later, he's still walking with the Lord every year. In November, on the anniversary of his baptism, he writes me a personal letter and tells me how he's doing. He's been doing this for 20 years. Maybe you know somebody like Bob, who's like, had nothing to do with church, it's boring, he's it's, it's got nothing but critical things to say, but if he were to try it, you never know. Maybe you know somebody like Lee Strobel. He was an atheist and a journalist with the Chicago Tribune. He began investigating the evidence for faith and became a Christian. He's written best-selling books like The Case for Christ and The Case for Faith. Maybe they're at Matthew's house. Maybe someone brought their kids. And can you picture some children running around? Maybe there was a little girl there like Penny. Penny, when she was a little girl, did not have an easy time of it. She grew up on the south side of Indianapolis. Her mom was gone a lot. Her dad tragically took his own life. And somehow, through some friends, she started being invited to come as a little girl, started coming to church at a Christian church on the south side of Indy. She heard about Jesus there, and she decided as she watched Christian families around her that weren't perfect and struggling, but had some things that she had not experienced in her family, she made the determination in her mind that someday, if God gives me the chance, I want my family to be different. Well, she married a minister, and for decades, they served as church planters in New York City. I will always thank God that that little girl met Jesus and followed him because that little girl grew up to be the person I know as my mother-in-law. She had four daughters, and I married the best one. <laughs> My wife's going to be here at the 11.15, so I have to say that. <laughs> no, seriously, she followed Jesus, and it changed her life and the trajectory of her family. Maybe you know friends, young or old, 
skeptical or trusting who need to know Jesus that way. Then Matthew chapter 9 goes on and it says, you know, there's always somebody who just puts a wet blanket on everything. You know, while Jesus was having dinner, this is all great. And then many tax collectors and, and all that were there. And so the Pharisees said, why is he doing that? Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Well, there's a simple answer. There's nobody on earth to eat with except sinners. <laughs> there's nobody except flawed people. If Jesus came to my house, he's going to be eating with a sinner. If he goes to your house, he's going to be eating with a sinner. Maybe not a tax collector, but a sinner. That's all he's got to work with here on this earth. I like to say it this way. Jesus does the unexpected, and he loves the disrespected. Charlie Daniels sang a country western song called Long-Haired Country Boy. And I kind of, uh, there's some things in the lyrics I don't like or agree with at all, but there's something about that song because in one line he says, if you don't like the way I'm living, just leave this long-haired country boy alone. And there's something in us as human beings is like, you know, if you don't like the way I'm living, just leave me alone. But the fact is, see, Jesus loves the long-haired country boy. And he doesn't leave you alone. He wants, to, he wants to help you. He wants to be with you. He wants to change your life for the better. Jesus hung around with people like that. So look what it says in the next verse, verse 12. It says, on hearing this, Jesus said, he heard the criticism. It says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Isn't it interesting that Jesus heard this? It's kind of a wake-up call that he hears what we say. Even the critical, snarky, mean, nasty things that people say, he hears them. He hears what people are saying about you. He hears what you're saying. He hears that. And then the wisdom of this, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. He's not saying that the Pharisees were healthy. He's saying, if you think you're healthy, I can't help you. If you're so prideful that you think you don't need me, what can I do for you? But if you understand how weak you are, then I can help you. Then I can help you. And so he says to them, go and learn what this means. And he quotes scripture. He's quoting here from the Old Testament book of Hosea. Go and learn what this means. They should have known it. It's in their Bible. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. That's what God says. In other words, even though sacrifices were important, offering lambs and all these animals on the altar, that was an important thing. But more than these outward religious acts, he says, I desire mercy in somebody's heart. For I have come, Jesus said, not to call the righteous, but sinners. More than God wants religious acts like sacrifices, he wants us to have a heart filled with his mercy toward other people. So follow me now. How does God see you? Matthew chapter 9 shows us some important things. It says the Lord sees us in our weakness and he wants to give us strength. Think about what we've said. He saw the plight of the Israelites, the Hebrews, when they were slaves in Egypt making bricks out of mud. He saw the desperate man who couldn't walk. He saw the faith of these desperate friends who brought him and did a crazy thing to open up a roof in order to get him there. He saw Matthew sitting there that everybody despised, but Jesus looked at him in the eye and called him to be his disciple. He saw Matthew's rough-edged friends, and he loved them. He hung out with them. He saw the religious folks who were looking down their noses at other people. He sees you, and he sees where you're weak and vulnerable, not just where you are strong and the image you project to other people. If you are physically sick or you are spiritually struggling, if you have doubts about God, if you've been wounded by religion, if you feel ashamed or guilty because of what you have done, 
He is there for you. He gives strength to the weak. And the Lord sees your weariness. And he wants to give you rest. So many of us are tired. Are you a parent and you're just exhausted? Are you getting worn down by all the bad news in the world? I am. Are you tired of your job? Is your marriage getting stale? Are you a student or a teacher and you're tired of school and it's only September? <laughs> and, and just, I say this with all earnestness, are you a person who's even just tired of life itself? Listen, Jesus is there for you. Here's what the Bible says about Jesus in Matthew 12. It says, a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. So if you've already been bruised, he's not gonna just snap you the rest of the way. If you're like a candle that's starting to burn out, he's not gonna just snuff you out. No, he will not snuff you out till he leads justice to victory, and in his name, in his name, the nations will put their hope, their hope. Jesus says to you, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. He sees your weakness. He sees your weariness. And that's because the Lord sees your worth. He sees what you're worth. I have to tell you about my, my family. My grandpa's name was Worth. W-O-R-T-H, that was his name. It's an old-fashioned name, Worth Faust. You don't hear people naming their boys Worth very much anymore. But I've always liked that. They named my dad, they gave it as a middle name, Paul Worth Faust. I like that name. There ought to be a revival of that name for baby boys because I've always liked thinking that when my grandpa was an infant, his parents looked down on him in the crib and said, see that baby there? That's Worth. That's Worth. To see the worth of a human life see this little one and say, that's worth. God does that with all of us. Whatever you're dealing with, wherever you're from, whatever you're going through, he looks down on you and he says, you have worth. And when you value somebody, when you consider them worthwhile, you will do almost anything for them. You will, you will, um, you will go the extra mile for them because you consider them worth it. My four-year-old granddaughter, I mentioned her earlier, she lives in New York City. A couple of weeks ago, her family moved to a new apartment, and she wanted a blue wall on her new bedroom. Well, I've got teenage granddaughters, and one way I like to show my love for my grandkids is I'll paint their bedrooms for them. So I've done that for my teenagers. So I told my daughter, look, i got a busy schedule right now, but one day I could fly over there and I could paint that bedroom wall. And she said, well, she wants it blue. I said, okay. So I flew to New York, and Mara and I painted her blue wall. <laughs> and uh, if, if you look closely, she's got a roller. One of my main goals was not to get paint on the floor. <laughs> but at the end of this, as the wall started to take shape, I said to her, Mara, now I want you to remember something. I want you to know Papa loves you. And every time you look at this blue wall, I want you to think that Papa and I did that together. And she said, yes. And I will remember that I wanted it to be a darker shade of blue. <laughs> Isn't that the way kids are? <laughs> 
But I'll tell you something, flying to New York for one day to paint a wall might sound a little crazy to you, but not if you're a grandparent. <laughs> there are grandparents in this room, I'll bet, who've done that kind of thing because they're worth it. And the memory of that, that day with her trying to keep paint off the floor and her not liking the color because she wanted it to be dark, I'm going to remember that the rest of my life. She's worth the effort. It made me go a long distance to be with her. And don't you see, when Jesus was nailed to the cross, it's like God looking at you and saying, don't you see how much you're worth to me? You're worth this to me. You're worth this level of suffering and pain. There's a story in the Gospels about a rich young man who came to Jesus with some questions, and the Bible says Jesus looked at him and loved him. That's how he sees you. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. That's how much he pays attention to things. On, and, and then he says, and, and on the, the hairs of your head, they're all numbered. So don't be afraid, he said. You're worth more than many sparrows. Jesus went on and he said, even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Now, I did some research and I found out that on average, there are about 100,000 hairs on every human head. And there are 7.6 billion people on earth. That's a lot of hair to count. But God keeps track of it all. That's how much he values you. In fact, he values so much that he wants you to be a partner with him in his mission and his work. So back to Matthew 9 again, at the end of the chapter, verses 37 and 38, he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. And you know that is so true in the church, it's true. The bystanders are many, but the workers are few. The spectators are many, but the workers are few. The critics are many. The second guessers are many, but the workers are few. And so Jesus is inviting you to be a worker in his father's harvest field. In fact, it's so interesting because he says, pray, ask that God will send workers. And you can see the disciples saying, okay, we'll pray about that. And then you read on into the very next chapter and it says, these Jesus sent. <laughs> so if you're willing to pray for workers, you better be willing to be one. And this brings all this message together because here's the challenge, folks, the challenge for you and for me. Remember what we said about God? God hears, God sees, God cares, God acts. But for other people in our world to know those things about God, they need to see those things in us. They won't know God is like that unless they see that we are like that. And so that's the challenge. This week, we will rub shoulders with people like Matthew and his friends. Will we help them get to know God? The Lord went the extra mile to be with you. Will you help someone know him too? Will you listen well to others? Do you see, really see other people? Do you really care about them so they know that the love of God is in you? And what will you do about what you've learned today? about Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God, I want to thank you for hearing us, for seeing us, for caring about us. We want to thank you, Lord, that you give us worth, that you value us enough that you would go to incredible lengths and personal sacrifice on your part in order to be reconciled to us, even though we've wandered away from you. 
Thank you for seeking us, Lord. And now, Lord, we pray that as we experience and receive your grace, that we will be vessels, ambassadors of your good news to share with urgency, with authenticity, with love, this grace that you've given us with the people in our world. People who might be skeptical or hard to be around, Lord, but help us to love them and see them the way you saw Matthew and his friends. Help us, Lord, to be doers of your word, not hearers only. This is our prayer in Jesus' name.